the recording. So this is Whiskey 101 by yours truly. So who am I? Um, well, obviously I'm Rampage, but I'm a WSCT Level 1 Certified Spirit Expert, a WSCT Level 1 Certified Wine Expert. I'm majoring in culinary art and food and beverage industry management, basically buying alcohol for restaurants and other stores and that sort of thing. Uh, potentially a minor in craft brewing, which will be fun. And then I'm a general enthusiast with experience guiding friends and family through this very, very expansive world of whiskey. And yes. You don't. You don't. Yeah, that, that's that's kind of the thing. I mean, there are... You can still, for example, get this certification if you wanted to. Um, because these in particular, it's more about learning about the regions, about the production, rather than specific, um, like, tastings, for example. So this, this is kind of the basic stuff. But... Um, Honestly, if you have a chance to do it, I highly recommend it. If you are over, you know, legal drinking age, they actually have outposts, as you will, all around the world that uh, offer this kind of education. It's actually quite fun to uh, learn about what you're drinking. So, where does it come from? Uh, it likely started in Ireland in the 13th to 14th century called Aquavitae, which means water of life. And it was used for medicinal purposes. It, it was legitimately medicine because you need high proof, well, alcohol to clean wounds, but they also found you could get drunk off of it, right? So, um, yeah, basically. Uh, it eventually moves to Scotland, where the earliest records of whiskey in Scotland go back to 1494 in the Exchequer Rolls, where an order of malted barley was made. That was estimated to be enough for about 500 bottles of whiskey. So about two barrels worth. But we'll talk about that in a couple of minutes. Now, we get the fun part of history, English law, which affected about half of the friggin' world. Uh, we have the Acts of Union in 1707, an English malt tax in 1725 that raised taxes uh, massively on malt, uh, malted barley. So, a lot of illicit stills popped up all around the countryside. Um, and about half of Scotland's production suddenly became illegal. Uh, anyone have any questions so far? Okay, cool. Uh, it eventually made its way to America during the Revolutionary War, where farmers would use excess grain, mostly corn, um, and distill it to basically prevent spoilage. This distilled corn spirit could actually also be a kind of currency because, well, it was basically pure corn, right? Uh, George Washington ran one of the largest distilleries in the country at the time uh, at his estate in Mount Vernon. Uh, interesting little factoid there. As far as we know from uh, geological digs at the Mount Vernon site, he made rye whiskey. But we'll talk about that as we get closer to, uh, you know, more distinct styles. <clears throat> so, as people would find out later on, but especially at the start, Kentucky was the hub of American distilling. 
for two reasons. One, it had massive, massive flat planes that people could work with, right? A lot of room to grow corn. And like we said before, you need to do something with your excess corn, right? Otherwise it goes bad, it attracts bugs, not good. So that's one part. The second part is that it has iron-free limestone water. And the reason iron-free water is important is because if you try and distill water that has iron in it, uh, it creates a very gross spirit. It's literally like black. There's some science crap behind it. I honestly don't understand the process that well myself. But just know, iron-free water is important. Okay? And then one of the biggest things we dealt with recent, well, recently, in the 1920s was prohibition, of course. Uh, massive effort to basically curb alcohol consumption in the United States. Uh, ultimately unsuccessful, but for a period of about 10 years, American distilleries almost all shut down. And we got a taste in the United States for Canadian, Scotch, and Irish whiskey. Because they could still produce it, but obviously it was illegal. So, you know, you had stuff like the Mafia dealing it out, um, especially in Chicago. We'll talk about that when we get to Canadian whiskey, because that's an entire thing all on its own. Okay, any questions? Any, any, any? All right, anyone else? Thank you. <laughs> All right, Russ. All right, cool. Uh, so now, what? Somebody said something. Somebody said... is what? What? Hi. I am, I am actually recording this, Tylus. I'm recording the audio, at least. So I can put it in, like, podcast form or something. Yeah. So. <laughs> I don't think so. I can post it in, like, discussion or something, like, off-topic. Um, so, now let's start talking theory. How is it made? There are three ingredients. You have grain, water, and yeast. That's it. You have four primary grains. You have corn, very common in American whiskey, barley, very common all across the world, rye, and wheat. <clears throat> you have other distillers. You have, like, rice whiskey, for example, but that's a pretty niche category. These are the big four. Pretty much every whiskey you'll find on the shelves is made out of those four. As we said before... Uh, water needs to be free of metals such as iron. There are others that you really don't want to deal with, but it needs to be very clean water. Otherwise, you get a terrible taste. It's kind of, it tastes like blood, basically. It's very metallic, and it'll be black and cloudy. Not, not good. Doesn't matter what you do, you can't save it. So, to make it, you bring in the grains. Whatever grains you're getting, for example, for bourbon, you might get corn, and a couple other ones. Um, the grain needs to have a certain water content. If it's too wet, then it won't crush properly. If it's too dry, then the enzymes that are contained in malted barley, which is one of the primary production 
ingredients in pretty much every whiskey around the world, but we'll talk about that in a bit. Um, they must be solid, not too broken up, because again, if you have too many small pieces, you can't really control how you're handling the grain, right? And then every distillery has their own other requirements. Again, this is sort of center of the bell curve. This is very general. This is the 100 level course. We're talking for water or grain. Um, it needs to be like a high enough grade, right? Oh, we have one more. Hello, Ice Bear. So it needs to be above a certain grain. You can't just get like um, crap grain, right? It needs to be of a high, high enough quality. And again, every distillery is different with their requirements, right? So, yeah. <clears throat> so you then take that grain off the trucks after you've run your tests and you put them into storage tanks. Next up, you basically take these grains to a mill and you break them down into much smaller pieces. It's kind of like a, if you've ever felt coarse corn flour or like cornmeal before, it's that same kind of texture, right? A little bit gritty, but you can, it's a little bit gritty, some fine particles, but you can still feel individual pieces, right? <clears throat> so after you do that, uh, this is basically just to expose more of the sugars um, to allow the malted barley with the enzymes in the barley to break down the sugars or the starch in the sugars, right? Into sugars that yeast can use. Because that's important, right? Gr starch is very complex. Um, it's very hard to break down for yeast. So you want to make it simpler so that the yeast can break it down later. Right. So important term to keep in mind, uh, mash bill, which just means the recipe of the grain that you use. So for example, in a mash bill, you might combine 70% corn, 25% rye, 5% malted barley. That would be pretty standard for bourbon. Right. And we'll talk about what bourbon means in a bit. Um, so you combine those grains and you pump them into a big old vat along with water. Anyone have any questions? Yeah, we're getting into other stuff. Right. Anyone else? I am very happy to answer. All right. We'll continue. So these grains are then heated into something remember resembling a loose porridge. And the malted barley again, like I said, contains enzymes to break down starch into simpler sugars. So in that time, the enzyme within the barley has gone to work, and now you have kind of a sludgy, slightly sweet, not really sweet, it's kind of, um, I don't know how to describe it, because I have tasted it once, it's very crunchy, because, you know, you still have big shards of grain in there. But um, you basically take that that mixture into a different tank and add water and now you add your yeast right and if you know what yeast does yeast breaks down sugars 
and it converts them one into CO2 and then one into alcohol. So this process can take a varying amount of time, anywhere from two to maybe even a week, two days to a week, right? It all depends on the, um, like a billion different factors, right? Even batch to batch, it can be different. So the mixture that results from this is called distiller's beer because in essence, it's basically beer, right? You've mixed grain, you've mixed water, you've mixed yeast. So now essentially you have a strong beer. The only difference is you don't have hops and then you also have all of the pieces of grain basically suspended in the liquid. And this distiller's beer can range anywhere in ABV from six to 11%, again, depending on a million different factors. Oh, I went too far. Uh, one second. All right, you guys saw nothing. Um, so then this mixture is pumped into a still, which is where the actual alcohol production takes place. Now, any questions before we continue? Yes. Because at a certain point, the yeast just dies, right? It's the same thing with bread. Eventually, it eats all its own sugars, or all the sugars around it. It basically sits in its waste product, which is ethanol and CO2, and that just dies off. It's not like it stops, or it's stopped by the distillery. It stops on its own. It's a similar thing with bread, right? Eventually, bread stops rising. So, I hope that answers your question. Okay. Uh, who is... Okay. I'm sorry, Russ, but I need to mute you temporarily. It's just uh, echoing. Okay. So, you have two different kinds of stills that you see. You have the pot still over here and the column still here. Every cell you'll see is either made out of copper or has copper linings in the pipes. And the reason for that is you have a chemical reaction with the spirit as it's being boiled, essentially, and it strips away some of the more acrid, bitter, and compounds that you just don't want to get into your final spirit. So a pot still is very, very simple. You basically have a heat source at the bottom, the spirit or the distiller's beer is in this section here. And then because alcohol boils at a lower temperature than water, you hold this at about 200 degrees Fahrenheit and the alcohol basically dissolves or boils off while leaving the water and any kind of remnants of grain behind in here. You may do it, a, you may do it several times. Most distillers do it at least twice. The first time, it'll be distilled to some... Well, actually, I'll talk about that later, so let's not get ahead of myself. But a column still, which is very common in the United States, instead of being just one, basically a pot, right? It's a tower with a series of plates. And as the liquid runs down the plates, it heats up. And the alcohol rises up the still and comes out. If you see this little pipe up here, it'll basically come up here go down here and this is a condenser this cools the um, spirit um, steam down and it condenses it into a liquid somewhere 
further down the line. Uh, any questions about stills? Yes, actually. Um, a lot of stills were pop stills, basically out of necessity, right? Um, that was the old way of doing it for a long time because it just made sense, right? Um, you have something over a fire and then it boils off. That's kind of it. But the column still was created um, kind of as a, as a way to increase production as a way to basically just make spirit faster because with a pot still you need to heat everything up but with a column still because the spirit is running down the plates it's constantly heating right so it's just faster it the taste is also different too because in a column still as it rises back up you have more of the sort of oils and other compounds that catch on the plates. Whereas the pot still, everything that can, that's dissolved in alcohol that can boil over does, right? So a lot of people say pot stills are kind of pure, but in reality, most people won't be able to tell the difference. Although, um, stylistically, what you make in each depends on the country, right? Uh, is that satisfactory? All right, cool. Anyone else? No? All right, we will continue. Uh, yeah, we already talked about this. So we talked about these two farts. Um, goes from the fermenting tanks to the bottom of the still. Um, alcohol is a little boiling port than water. So after the first distillation, you'll get a kind of slightly cloudy liquid um, that's around 30 to 40% ABV. And this is called uh, low wines in some country. It's basically just, um, it's not complete yet, right? Like this, this is not complete. So at the second stage, because you basically distill it again, right? You distill the now slightly clarified spirit a second time. And this is where you make what are called cuts, where you decide what you're getting rid of and what you're keeping. The front part of the cuts are called the four shots, and those are nasty. It's like industrial cleaner. I've smelled them. It's awful. And they can potentially be deadly because this is sort of the light um, alcohol coming off first, right? So you don't keep it. You basically get rid of it. Um, your middle cuts, the heart cuts, that's what you want to keep. That's what tastes good. So you're keeping those, and how narrow or wide you make the heart cuts um, it depends on, well, it depends on the distillery, basically. Um, and then at the end, you get the, uh, the tails, as they're called. And those, they're not, like, poisonous, but they're kind of weird. They're kind of, like, mushroom funky. Um, definitely not something that the average person likes. So, you generally, no, they do not. They're, you can, you can technically drink them, but they don't taste, one, they taste awful, and two, they smell awful, so, uh, they're basically, I mean, sometimes you may keep them to distill them again, just to try and get, you know, whatever alcohol you can't, whatever usable alcohol you can out of them, 
but you don't sell them, you don't do anything with them. Um, you either get rid of them or potentially use them again. So at the end of the second distillation, you'll have a clear spirit that resembles vodka or gin or white rum. Um, and it ranges in proof depending on local laws. Uh, proof basically means alcohol. So, for example, if I say 100 proof, that just means 50% alcohol. Basically, take proof, divide it in half. Right? You may have people that use, um, like, ABV. Like, for example, 30 to 40% ABV, that would be 60 to 80 proof. Right? All right. Anyone have questions before I continue? Anyone, anyone, anyone? Uh, I didn't. Next question. <laughs> All right. So we're done with distilling. Now, let me... Yes. Yes. I can answer it now. Well, you can distill three times. Actually, Ireland, a lot of their wiki... Or whiskey... Wikis. Whiskies are triple distilled. Which means you distill them three times. Um, but two times is generally standard. Right? Especially in the U.S. Uh, pure spirit, basically. Um, you get smaller and smaller heart cuts. So, that may make the spirit taste better. Um, a lot of it... Again, it's kind of... It's very difficult science to say, you know, what does what. Like, we know, for example, that the shape of a still influences the spirit. And we know why. Um, triple distilling is kind of a regional tradition, and in some cases it can give you a purer spirit. Um, yeah. Yeah, it, it can definitely be... Yeah, it can definitely be part of the business side. Um, it, it all depends on what the distillery is doing. Yeah, and I mean, Jameson does it. I think um, a lot of the brands under the Jameson umbrella do it. Um, there are definitely others, but Jameson is probably one of the most famous. Okay, so now we get to aging a whiskey. All whiskey in the world, if it wants to be called whiskey, is aged in wooden barrels by law. You can't, um, well, a couple of reasons. Historically, it was basically so coopers could keep their jobs, right? Because, well, once a, theoretically, you could basically use a whiskey barrel five or six times. I'll, I'll I'll speak from like a U.S. perspective here. Theoretically, you could use a whiskey barrel five or six times, right? Um, so in the U.S., Cooper's basically lobbied uh, so that you had to use a new oak barrel so that they could keep their jobs, right? But in terms of aging in wood, um, well, it's basically most of the color at least especially in countries that don't allow coloring 
Because some, some countries, well, actually, most countries do allow you to add tasteless caramel coloring. The U.S. doesn't, but it's responsible for a good chunk of the color and most of the flavor, if you're not doing, like, a flavored whiskey. So, it's all aged in wooden barrels. It's not like wine where it, it's also not like wine where it ages, say, in the bottle, right? Like, have you ever had a gin that ages in the bottle? For example, right? It, it doesn't do anything. It's inert, right? Time alone does not change whiskey. Time in a barrel does. So, all of it is aged in wooden barrels. And usually, you may have some exceptions, but usually they're made out of oak. Specifically, white oak. As it has no kind of astringent elements. It has no like toxic sap. And it's also somewhat porous. So the liquid can go into the wood and come out of it. Without you know extreme temperatures. And it's not too porous to allow whiskey to just evaporate like crazy. Right? So water is added to the whiskey after it comes out of the stills. Because the whiskey as it comes off the still ranges anywhere from... In the U.S., the max you can distill to is 160 proof, so about 80%. In Scotland and Ireland, you can distill up to 94.8%, so you can go way higher. But, all of it is watered down. Generally, it's watered down anywhere from the 62.5% range, which is the U.S. maximum for putting it into a barrel, to 63.5% in Scotland and Ireland, which is the sort of traditional entry proof over there. Um, and that's mostly just through ex experimentation, right? Because they've been making whiskey for centuries. So they sort of, they sort of know what works and what doesn't. Uh, these filled barrels are then moved to warehouses where they can sit for potentially decades. Some countries do have minimum age requirements, others do not. Um, but you may see, you may have barrels that'll sit in a warehouse for 30, 40, even 50 years in some cases. As the barrel heats and cools with either the changing of the seasons or, you know, however, however it happens, the spirit gets forced into wood as it gets hot. Right, because again, the alcohol evaporates. Right, and it can get hot in these barrels, and especially in these big warehouses, because they don't have any sort of um, like air conditioning. Some of them do, but traditionally, it's open to the elements. Right, so they can get very, very hot. So it gets forced in and out of the grain of the wood, and it picks up flavor compounds as it goes. And you can have potentially dozens of compounds in the wood of the barrel that influence taste. And it also influences the color as it goes in and out. Um, it depends entirely on climate. And the biggest reason for this is in dry climates, water will evaporate before alcohol does. Because, well, there's not much water in the air, right? So naturally, water wants to leave the barrel. But in a humid climate, Scotland, for example, 
alcohol will evaporate before water does because again it's more humid and it's also cooler right that's why you'll probably never see a bourbon for example that's aged 50 years but you can see a scotch that's aged 50 60 even more uh, pretty regularly because the environment just allows them to go that long you just can't do that in the U.S. It's too warm in comparison in the vast majority of states. And sometimes you may have barrels. Yes? Do you want to say something? I guess he was talking to someone else. Uh, sometimes. No, it's okay. It's okay. I thought you had a question. Uh, sometimes... You may use barrels to age, that were previously used to age stuff like sherry, rum, port, or even other whiskey in the aging process. Uh, this is especially common outside of the U.S. where for their whiskey, as long as it's wood and non-toxic, obviously, um, they can use whatever kind of oak they want to, right? Especially uh, sherry is one of the most common ones outside of ex-bourbon barrels, which is by far the most common barrel that Scotland, Ireland, and other producers use. Uh, any questions before we move on? Anyone? There's like nine of you here and no one's saying anything. <laughs> What's the question, Russ? How long you can age it? Yeah. Um, well, the thing is, you lose whiskey as it ages, right? You lose volume. Depending on the country and the environment, you can lose anywhere from 2% of a barrel's contents upwards. If you're, in a content, if you're in a place like Texas, very hot, very dry, you can lose anywhere from 2 to 15% of the liquid per year right yeah you can lose a lot um, no and even if you could because it's so hot and so dry you basically pull eventually you'll just pull too much bitterness out of the oak and it'll just it'll taste basically just like you're chewing on a piece of wood right which is uh, not fantastic um, so it, it's sort of a, it's a balancing act. You don't want to leave it in for too long because if you do, it becomes bitter. But you don't want to leave it in for too little time because then um, it tastes too young. It tastes kind of grainy. It tastes kind of sharp because barrel aging often rounds out flavors. In some climates, it can massively accentuate them like Texas, as I was talking earlier, because it's very high heat. But especially in a place like Scotland, it rounds out flavors. It's like smoothing a rock with an ocean, right? It's slow, but it takes off layer after layer after layer and just gets smoother and smoother and smoother, but also smaller, right? So there's... Yep, eventually. Um, 
So again, it's it's kind of a balancing act, right? And it's a balancing act that they've been playing with for uh, centuries, even. All right, any more questions before we move on? Yes. They do. Yes, they, they, they use ex-bourbon barrels for a lot of their whiskey because once bourbon barrels are used once, they're mostly useless to bourbon producers, right? So they'll... Because that's the law. You can only use a barrel once. Yeah, the laws. We'll, we'll talk about it once we get to American whiskey uh, in particular. But they'll basically ship their barrels over to Scotland. And ex-bourbon, it kind of... Because all of the super harsh, super strong flavors are out of the barrel, it's much more mellow a second time around, right? Because American oak is powerful. It influences the spirit a lot. But if you're putting in a second... If you're using it a second time, it's much more round. Yep. Anything else? Alright, we shall... We can talk about that later. Is I'll, I'll, I'll explain. I'll explain my preferences a little bit later. So finally, we have the bottling process. Oh, somebody want to say something? Someone's gone. I guess they left. <laughs> um, so after however many years, uh, the whiskey is then bottled. Um, producers will often take potentially thousands of barrels for one batch and they'll basically blend those barrels together and it helps create a more consistent flavor profile right some may just bottle one barrel right you just take the barrel you water it down to whatever abv you want it to be and then you just bottle that and that can create some unique flavors depending on where the barrel was sitting how old the spirit is that kind of thing um, like I said, water will be added to the whiskey after it comes out of the barrel. The lowest you can go for whiskey pretty much everywhere is 40%. Um, some, for some bottlings, may leave it at barrel proof or cast strength, which is basically you take it straight out of the barrel and you bottle it. And that strength may vary a lot, right? So, for example, in Kentucky you may actually have your proof rise. Because remember, you can only put it into the barrel at 125 proof. So you may have it so that it goes up to 140 plus in some cases. Like it can go higher. Um, in Scotland, it generally goes lower. But in the U.S., it can go higher. And you can get some really high proof whiskeys out there. Any questions? All right, we will move on to just a quick little disclaimer. Because, Blorgle, I know you're underage, but you seem like you're not, you know, a moron. So that's good. Hello? Oh, whatever. So drink, drink responsibly. Okay, I'm just going to say that because we're about to actually talk about whiskey itself. Not just the production of it. You... you 
you can't you you can if you want to it's it all depends on what you're making so for example if you're making something for the masses who don't want to drink something that's 125 plus proof you can water it down to 40 percent the flavors might be simpler but it'll be much easier to drink right but Yeah. Yep, absolutely. You might have, um, especially there's one, there's a group of producers called independent bottlers. What they'll do is they'll basically go around to distilleries, find unique barrels, like barrels that they, ba they basically just taste out of it. And it's like, oh, okay, this is something different. And then they'll buy that barrel and bottle it under their own label. Not the company's label, but their label, Right. Yeah, I mean, it's an entire world, independent bottling. But uh, just a quick disclaimer before we continue. Um, if you're underage, this is something my RA taught me, or told me when we when I first came to campus on col uh, at college. Uh, if you're going to drink, don't be stupid about it. Drink somewhere you're safe, whether it's your house or a friend's house. Don't do it at parties. That's a really fucking bad idea. Um, but yeah, that, that's the, that's the underage, um, disclaimers out of the way, but now, yeah, it's, it's okay. Just, it's fine. Um, tasting whiskey is a super subjective experience. Everyone has different flavor notes that they're going to get. Go into everything with an open mind and a fresh palate, and you're not going to be an expert right away. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Start with ice if drinking it neat is too much. Eventually move to adding water, then see if you can do it neat and still pull out flavors. If you can't, that's okay. I'm not f trying to force you to drink your stuff neat. If you like it over ice, go for it. If you like it with Coke, go for it. If you like cocktails, go for it. There's nothing wrong with any of that. I'm just here to hopefully educate you so that you don't buy crap. Okay? That's all, I, that's all I'm here to do. At least from going forward. Alright. So we talked all the theory. Let's get to the good stuff. So whiskeys from various countries have different regulations on what can and cannot be used in their production. And we're going to be talking about the big five, as I call them. The United States... Scotland, Ireland, Canada, and Japan. So these are five of the biggest whiskey producing countries on the planet. So we'll start off with American. So American whiskeys mostly follow the same set of mother principles. They cannot be distilled above 160 proof and they cannot be barreled at higher than 125 proof. Uh, it has to be aged in a new charred oak barrel, but there's no requirement for how long. You can age it for five minutes if you want to and call it a whiskey. No one's going to do that, but you can. Uh, you cannot add flavoring or coloring. If you age it for at least two years, you can call it a straight whiskey. Straight bourbon, straight rye, etc. If it's aged... In between two and four years, say you age it three years, 
it has to have an age statement on the bottle. If you age it over four years, you don't. And then minimum of 40% ABV for most categories. Any questions? Yes. Uh, one th I probably should have mentioned this during aging. But one thing you do when you're basically making barrels is you char the insides. Literally char it with fire. Right? And this will drive off some of the kind of off compounds that you don't want. It'll bring a lot of kind of vanilla, sweet, caramel flavors to the forefront. Right? Dep how much you char it, because you can go light char or you can go really, really heavy. It depends on how long you char it, what kind of flame you char it with, that kind of thing. Uh, but it has to be charred in order to extract, basically, basically extract the most amount of flavor and actually get good flavor from the barrel. All right. So let's go. Big four categories in the United States. First, bourbon. The mash bill has to be at least 51% corn. So whatever grain you want to use after that, go for it. Uh, some examples, if you want to start with it, would be some of my favorites at least, are Four Roses, Wild Turkey, and Buffalo Trace. These are all easy to find. They have good expressions at most price points, and they're pretty affordable. Um, next up would be Rye Whiskey which is 51% rye. And where bourbon is kind of caramel sweet, a little bit of leather, rye is very spicy and dry um, and kind of herbal in some cases. Uh, some of my favorites, bullet rye is easy to find and cheap. Whistle pig, easy to find, not so cheap, but also pretty good. Uh, and high west is also pretty good if you can find it. Uh, I would also recommend Rittenhouse Rye, if you can find it. Uh, third category is malt whiskey in the United States. So the mash bill for this one is at least 51% malted barley. Uh, and this is a category that craft small distillers are trying to get changed. Yes? Blorgel? Oh, I thought you were trying to say something. No, it's okay. Uh, they're trying to get changed so that they can more closely emulate the Scotch malt whiskey. Because right now, you can you only have to use 51% malted barley. Whereas, for example, in Scotch, you have to use 100% malted barley. So that's one big thing. And you still have to use new oak barrels rather than use old oak. <laughs> um... But, there are still some good malt whiskeys out there. Balconis is one of my favorites. They're actually a distillery out of Texas. Uh, Town Branch is something I've found um, pretty regularly, around me at least. Um, I'd say it's pretty common. And then, a lot of local distilleries, like small distilleries basically just producing their own whiskey, uh, will make a malt whiskey. Why? I don't know. Yes. So malt whiskey, it's kind of, I describe it almost kind of like oatmeal, right? Like rye whiskey is spicy, peppery, um, kind of herbal, whereas malt whiskey, um, 
it's a little bit sweeter. It's a little bit more grain forward. It kind of smells and tastes like oatmeal in some cases. Um, but again, th these what I'm saying for notes are kind of like middle of the bell curve. Uh, you may have some distillers that do weird stuff with theirs. Or you may get entirely different flavors. And again, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. And the last category is wheat whiskey, which is mash bill of at least 51% wheat. And it's not to be confused with a wheater, wheater, which is a bourbon where the next highest percentage grain is wheat. So wheat whiskey and wheater are two different things. So just keep that in mind when you go forward. Wheat whiskey as a category is pretty rare to find because it's one, there aren't that many established good recipes for it. And the tastes are kind of, they're very different to these three. Wheat whiskey is, um, uh, do you have Woodford wheat whiskey or just Woodford? Yeah, well, that's, that would be, that would be a bourbon, right? But Woodford wheat whiskey is a, is a particular product. And honestly, I can't tell you what wheat whiskey tastes like because I've never had it. Because, like I said, it's very rare to find. You can definitely get some, but it's hard. Um, so you're going to be on a bit of a hunt. Uh, so those are the big four. And there are a couple other kind of major legal categories. Well, a couple of them are legal. One of them really isn't, but we'll talk about that in this slide. So, one of the categories that technically isn't a legal category, but is a sort of established uh, label in the United States, would be Tennessee whiskey. And it's any whiskey made in Tennessee that goes through the Lincoln County process, where they take the spirit off the still, and before they barrel it, they filter it through charcoal. That's it. And it follows the rules of whatever whiskey it's based on. So Jack Daniels, probably the most popular whiskey in the United States, follows every rule of bourbon. But since it has charcoal mellowing, it calls itself a Tennessee whiskey. That's the only difference, the charcoal. There's nothing else special about it. Yep. If you put it through a Brita filter, you could, as long as it was made in Tennessee, you could call it a Tennessee whiskey. Uh, well, it needs, it needs to follow the rules up until that point, right? No. Um, but unironically, Jack Daniels is a good place to start if you want to start with whiskey that's relatively affordable. It's not, as long as you're not trying to, you know, drink straight from the bottle, it can actually be a good experience. Well, you haven't been to college yet, have you? <laughs> Don't worry, you'll you'll figure that out quickly. Uh Well it doesn't need to be enjoyable, it just needs to get you drunk. Yeah. Um so that's the first one. Now corn whiskey is actually a pretty unique category. It needs a mash bill of at least 80% corn and must be aged in either used or uncharred barrels 
or not be aged at all. Right? Yeah. It ba it basically be moonshine, right? So for example, Oh yeah. You can find plenty of those. Uh if you want to try like legit corn whiskey, uh best best advice, mellow corn. It's easy to find, it's stupid cheap. Right, like I can get a bottle for $15 and it's actually decent quality. Uh, because then it's bourbon. Yeah, like I said, the, um, the only difference is the used or uncharred barrel. If you put in a charred barrel or a new, or a new barrel, suddenly it's bourbon, right? That's the only difference. Uh, Melicorn is good. Balconis, again, they make um, a couple whiskeys called Baby Blue and True Blue, which are made entirely from corn. And I actually quite like them a lot. So if you want to try corn whiskey, it's it's very, well, it's very corn forward. Like corn sweetness, if you ever had sweet corn. It's, it's kind of like that. Um, very grain forward. Usually quite young. Um, mellow corn, yeah, if it has been, it's usually very young. Mellow corn, for example, is four years old. Balconis, probably around two, maybe. So it, it's usually young if it is aged. And finally, we have blended whiskey. Um, it's technically, I wouldn't even call it whiskey, but it's whiskey mixed with neutral grain spirit at no less of a ratio a 20% whiskey and 80% neutral spirit. And it can also be proofed down to 70 to uh, 35% rather than 40%. Honestly, I wouldn't bother with this category. I think it's crap. They usually use crap whiskey. Um, now I don't hate. Yeah, like you like so, think uh, Southern Comfort and all of those kind of super cheap plastic jug blends. You know, uh, I don't hate flavored whiskey, for example, like flavored whiskey might technically fall in this category, but some of them are actually pretty good. Um, definitely do some research on those. Uh, but if you want to research more about the law in the United States, uh, this law right here, 27 CFR, whatever that funny civil is, 5.22, uh, defines pretty much every spirit that's sold in the United States. So if you want uh, a more comprehensive look, you can find it there. All right. Any questions? Anyone else? No? All right. Let us continue. Now we go to Scotch whiskey in Scotland. Uh, you have five different categories, but they all follow the same basic rules. They must be distilled under 94.8% alcohol by volume. Um, usually, it's not a law at what proof you put it into the barrel, but most distilleries go around 63.5%, as I said before. It must be produced and aged entirely in Scotland, with aging at least taking three years. That's every drop on the island has to be aged at least three years if you want to call it scotch. The barrel cannot be bigger than 700 liters. Uh, I don't know how big that is in gallons, but some 
Yes. Um, one, you want the wood to have some influence on the spirit. And 700 liters is the size of... Oh, what kind, I can't remember the name of the barrel. But it's basically a barrel that you would use to age sherry, right? Which is a type of dessert wine. Um, and it's, bas- it's basically the biggest barrel... Um, that you can easily get. Like, you can get special ones that are bigger, but this is kind of one of the most common, largest ones you can get. Right? So that that's basically what the law was based around. Uh, minimum ABV of at least 40%. And you can add tasteless caramel coloring. You can't do that in the United States. But you can in Scotland. You cannot add any flavoring. However, if you want to call it Scotch whiskey, no, it will be called like um, flavored whiskey, maybe, or like blended whiskey. You can't have Scotch on the bottle if you add flavoring. Uh, has to be aged in excise warehouse or a designated location, so you can't just age it, you know, in the middle of nowhere, right? It has to be in a designated warehouse, and if the bottle has an age statement. The youngest whiskey in the bottle is what the age statement describes. So, for example, if you have a 10-year-old whiskey, 80% of it might be that 10-year-old whiskey. But you might have 10% that's, say, 15 years old. You may have 5% that's 20, and you may have 5% that's 25, right? And what that does is it creates more consistency per batch, right? Well, they basically taste it, right? You have a master distiller that'll be in charge of blending everything. He'll have notes potentially hundreds of years back, right? Saying, okay, if you have barrels from this section of the warehouse that are 12 years old and barrels from this section of the warehouse that are 15 years old, you want to blend them in this way, right? Like, it's a lot of trial and error, note-taking, and there's also some technology to it, but a lot of it is trial and error. Any questions? All right. We're going to first talk about the first category, which is single malt scotch, and we're also going to talk scotch regions, which are over here. So single malt means two things. It's made from 100% malted barley, that's what malt means, and made at one distillery, which is what single means. So single malt means one distillery made from all malted barley. That's it. It doesn't mean anything else. Yeah, you may that would be blended scotch, like blended malt scotch, right? You may have um, independent uh, groups that basically buy scotch from other distilleries and blend it together, right? For whatever reason that is, they just they just do it, right? <laughs> um, so you have five distinct regions in Scotland defined by the Scotch Whiskey Association. There's a sixth, but we'll talk about that later. So the first one is Speyside. They have the most distilleries, you can see them here, they have the most distilleries in the entire country in that region. 
And the reason for that is because the river that runs through the area, called the River Spey, historically, it was a good source of water, and it allowed you to transport barrels downriver, right? Transport them out of Scotland easily before, you know, railroads were common or before, you know, trucks were common, right? So it's, it's Speyside whiskeys, generally, they're very sweet, fruity, kind of apple-y and pear-y, and they're very gentle. And it's a good introduction to single malt scotch. Um, certain examples, something like Glenfiddich, Glenlivet, Avalor, or Glenfarkless are what I would recommend if you want to start out with the Speyside Scotch. Second region, largest in by far in terms of landmass, is the Highland region. Um, and that's kind of characterized by very spicy, kind of malty, grain-forward, and fruity whiskey. Uh, and some examples you'll find commonly would be Macallan. Um, if, if you can drink, even if you don't drink whiskey, you've probably heard of Macallan. Uh, they're one of the most famous brands in the world. Um, Glen Morangy and Ben Nevis are some of them that I would recommend uh, for you to start with. So lowlands are, well, they're the lowest region of Scotland. And their whiskeys are kind of grassy, floral, and very light. Um, I personally haven't tried any of them yet, just because... Um, there aren't that many that come into the States. You can definitely find them, 100%. Um, but really, Speyside, Highland, and Isla, which I'll talk about in a bit, are the most common to find by far. Uh, but you can definitely find these. I'd recommend Ochantashan, Glen Kinchy, or Ailsa Bay. Those three are what I would recommend you start out with for Lowlands. <clears throat> Your fourth region is this tiny, tiny little peninsula called Campbelltown, which is named after a coastal region called Campbelltown. Um, they used to have a lot more distilleries, but due to the dominance, basically, of the Highland and Speyside region, Campbelltown basically shut down, and there are only a handful of distilleries there now. It is resurging a little bit. You've got a few more, but it's still by far the smallest region. Uh, in terms of uh, distillery amount. Uh, they have kind of smoky, fruity, sweet whiskey. Um, it's kind of a unique regional profile. It kind of has a mix of flavors from a bunch of different regions. Uh, and it's really quite nice. Uh, I would recommend Springbank, Kilcarran, and Glen Scotia. Um, the Campbelltowns in particular aren't cheap, but you can definitely find them. Um, and they are quite good. So if you do have, you know, the money to burn on this hobby, um, they're a good place to start with. Uh, your fifth officially recognized region is a island, as you can see here, called Isla. It's Isla, not Isle, not Isle, it's Isla. Okay, ask any Scottish person. They tell you the same thing. Uh, it's an island off the coast of Scotland, and it's very unique compared to its neighbors. 
it creates very smoky, peaty, briny, salty, and meaty whiskey. And it's by far my favorite region. Um, it's very, very unique in what it produces. Um, if you watch this little-known show called Parks and Recreation, you might have heard about it. Um, whenever... Um, oh, God, why can't I remember his name now? Uh, yes, thank you. Whenever Ron talks about Lagavulin, this is where it comes from. It comes from Isla, right? Lagavulin is actually a pretty good introduction to it. Uh, if you want to dive right into the deep end, you can go with Ardbeg and Lafroig. And if you want something more meaty and kind of salty, I would recommend Brooklatic. Uh, but specifically, look for Port Charlotte. That's the smoky whiskey that they make. And then finally, we have the islands, which is really just basically a collection of islands all off the coast of Scotland. Like, you've got some up here, you've got some here, you've got a big chain of them down here. It's not officially recognized, but you'll find some whiskeys that do say they're from the islands, right? And if you want some representations of this, I would recommend either Talisker or Highland Park. Uh, any questions? Um, it's similar to Isla, but kind of gentler. Like, instead of being, um, like, really, really smoky, it's more gentle smoke. It's a little bit sweeter. It's a little bit easier to drink. Like, Isla is, is pretty hard to get into as a beginner. You can definitely do it, um, but I would not recommend it. I would recommend, like I said, starting with Speyside, Highland, maybe Campbelltown, but these two are what I would recommend to start with. Uh, any further questions? All right, we shall continue. Other Scotch types. <clears throat> so we have single grain whiskey. So it's similar to single malt in that it's made at one distillery, but it uses grain. So you can use corn, wheat, rye, or other grains in the distillation process. Now, unfortunately, single-grain scotch is pretty hard to find because a lot of it basically just goes in the blends, right? You can definitely find it, and you'll have some independent bottlers that do sell it, uh, but it is somewhat rare, so it's going to be a bit of a hunt to find it. And oftentimes, honestly, I just don't even think it's as good as single malt. I'm not trying to discourage you. If, if you really want to try it, like it's a unique... Um, oh, what's the word? It's a unique expression, but it is going to be a hunt to try and find some. <clears throat> so, the first blended category <clears throat> we talk about is blended malt scotch, which is a mix of whiskeys from several distilleries, but all of it is single malt scotch. Right, and some examples you'll find the wild monkey shoulder uh, and Johnny Walker Green are two kind of the big examples, especially Johnny Walker Green. Um, and Johnny Walker Green is the only Johnny Walker that's blended malt, uh, but we'll talk about that in a 
or yeah, blended malt. But we'll talk about other blend, the blended whiskey in a bit. Uh, we have blended grain whiskey, which is same thing as blended malt, but it's using all grain whiskey. And the biggest example, probably one of the most famous, is Compass Box Hedonism. Uh, Compass Box is one of the independent bottlers I was talking about, and they started off their company basically with this uh, hedonism. You can definitely find it, but it's becoming increasingly more rare uh, to get any. So, um, because most of it is going into this blended whiskey. Um, most grain whiskey basically ends up as the base of blended whiskey because you can put in any kind of scotch that you want. As long as it's made in Scotland and aged at least three years, you can make it into blended whiskey. So most Johnny Walkers, like Johnny Walker Red, Johnny Walker Black, uh, Johnny Walker Blue even will be blended. Uh, you have Dewars, you have Chivas Regal, you have a bunch of different companies that make blended scotch. But it's all still made in Scotland, and it's all at least still three years old. Any questions before we f move south to Ireland? Alright, then we will continue to Irish whiskey. The vast majority of Irish whiskey all comes from a handful of producers. You have Middleton, who is the distillery behind Jameson and all their brands under that umbrella. Old Bushmills, Teeling, Tullamore, and Cooley. Uh, back in the day, <laughs> if you will, the Irish distillers wanted to keep making single pot still whiskey, which is a unique whiskey expression to Ireland, and I'll talk about it in a bit. But you had this rising taste for blends that meant almost all of them shut down. Only Middleton and Old Bushmills survived. But thanks to the success of Jameson, especially in the 90s, uh, Irish whiskey really has come on a lot stronger recently. You have a lot of distilleries that have been opening up in the past decade in Ireland now. So to be called Irish whiskey, it has to follow these regulations. Made and aged entirely in Ireland, made out of a mash of malted cereals or other cereal grains. Cereal in this case just means um, like the various different strains of barley or strains of grain, right? Because you have different kinds of corn, different kinds of wheat, that kind of thing, right? Distilled at less than 94.8% alcohol, aged in barrels less than 700 liters in size. You can also add caramel coloring. It has to retain the color, flavor, and aroma derived from the production processes above. Like that's kind, of, you know, it's kind of vague, but I hope you get it. And you have to have a minimum alcohol content of 40%. Any questions? All right, we will continue. Four different styles. Um, you have single malt which is basically the same as Scottish single malt. However, the Irish often will triple distill their spirits. That's something that we talked about earlier. Um, so this is where that triple distillation comes into play. Um, some examples you can find, you can find Teeling single malt and Kavanaugh single malt uh, pretty regularly, I found. Um, 
The next category is single pot still whiskey. And this is unique to Ireland. It's similar to a single malt, but some of the barley is unmalted. Right? So you basically just take barley from the fields, not letting it malt at all, and you mix it in. Right? And historically, this allowed the Irish to get around British tax law because, like I said, you know, when the English were taxing everyone out of existence, one of the ways the Irish found to get around the law was using unmalted barley, which is something that the British didn't tax at the time. Uh, some good examples you can find Redbreast is one of my favorites. It's fantastic. It's a little expensive, but if you can find it, it's great. Uh, and then Green Spot is also fantastic. These both come from the same company that make Jameson. Um, and actually, I'm, I am unironically going to recommend Jameson later, but we'll talk about that in a bit. Uh, grain whiskey um, is unlike other Irish whiskey, and that Irish whiskey traditionally is made in a pot still, but this is made in a column still. It's somewhat similar in Scotland, but you still see a lot of distilleries that make grain whiskey in pot stills. But in Ireland, almost all grain whiskey goes through a column still. It's the same as Scottish grain whiskey, but very, very little of it actually gets held back for anything but blends. Right, because, for example, Jameson, they produce everything that goes into Jameson in-house. So all of the grain whiskey they produce goes into Jameson, right? But you still can't find it. Teeling Single Grain is one of them. There's also a brand called Method and Madness, which is a small distillery that's actually in the same, I guess you could call it industrial park, as the Middleton Distillery. They make a single grain whiskey as well um, that you can find. Uh, so those would be my recommendations. Uh, <clears throat> and then blended whiskey is basically the same as blended scotch, right? And for that, Jameson is actually pretty nice. Uh, if you want to step it up, Jameson Stout Cask, it's great. And if you want to go super el cheapo, Cavanaugh. Uh, is what I recommend from that. Any questions? Alright, we will continue. Now we have Canadian whiskey. Uh, really, as a category, it got kickstarted because of Prohibition. You would have basically, especially, you would basically have the Chicago Mafia buy whiskey in Canada ship it across the Great Lakes, and then distribute it all across the United States, right? You definitely have other people that would do it, but, you know, as people basically went north to drink, um, the American palate got a taste for Canadian whiskey. Uh, the laws in Canada are as follows. It has to be mashed, distilled, and aged in Canada. It has to age in small wood. Hey, hey. What, and whatever small wood means. For at least three years. ABV of at least 40%. And may contain caramel coloring and flavoring. 
that's one of the key differences. Uh, you can you can flavor you can add tons of caramel flavoring to Canadian whiskey, and a lot of whiskey producers do because Americans like sugar, right? That's kind of just how it is. Um, most of it we get is not very good in the states. We get a lot of you know you'll see Crown Royal everywhere. You'll see crap like Rich and Rare and all those like cheap plastic bottle jugs. But there are some premium expressions you can find. Uh, I would recommend Whistlepig. I know it's an American rye, or it's a rye whiskey that's technically made in America, but a lot of the rye that they do source for their 10-year-old whiskey is actually from Canada, right? Um, if you want to get it from Canada, uh, Alberta Premium Cask Strength is an option. It is 66% alcohol, so it's very, very strong. So I wouldn't start with this one, but if you can handle high-proof spirits, it's a fantastic rye whiskey because um, it is rye. I probably should have written that down. Um, same thing with Whistlepig. Both of them are ryes. Uh, you have Lot 40 Canadian rye, um, which is kind of more mellow and sweet than your American rye, which would be very spicy. But it's very, very tasty, and I enjoy it quite a lot. And then if you must have <coughs> something Crown Royal and you don't want to get the flavored nonsense, I would recommend Crown Royal Black. Um, just because there's a little bit more flavor in it than plain old Crown Royal. And it's not uber expensive like the uh, higher-end bottlings. Any questions? All right, we shall continue. Finally, we have Japanese whiskey, which is a massive scam. And the reason for that is most of it isn't actually from Japan. Due to an explosion of popularity that Japanese whiskey had in 2013, thanks to the Yamazaki Sherry Cask winning Best Whiskey in the World in the book of a very influential... Uh, basically alcohol personality, right? Um, many distilleries popped up where they basically bought scotch from Scotland and you either age it for maybe a couple of months or you literally just buy it, bottle it, and then sell it as Japanese whiskey. However, thankfully... Many distilleries that are part of a, basically a big collective of distilleries um, in Japan trying to police themselves on higher quality standards wanted to pass some regulations that are as follows. The distillers must use malted grains but can use other cereal grains. So malted barley, you can use stuff like rye um, and all of that other stuff. Rye, corn. The water used to make the whiskey must come from Japan. The saccharification, which is the conversion of the starches into sugar, as we talked about earlier, fermentation, and distillation must all take place at a Japanese distillery. The whiskey must be matured in Japan in wooden casks for at least three years. The bottling must happen in Japan. You can use plain caramel coloring. 
and if those above six regulations are not met, the whiskey may not carry any symbolism of Japan, be called Japanese whiskey, or use the names of people or locations in Japan. So, very, very strict um, is what they're trying to pass. However, if you want to try Japanese whiskey that's actually made in Japan, here are a couple recommendations. Uh, Yamazaki, Hakushu, and Hibiki. All of those brands are made in Japan, and they're all under Beam Suntory. If you've heard of Jim Beam, they're basically one half of that, right? Uh, Nika Coffee Malt and Coffee Grain, both of them made in Japan. Taketsuru, Maine, Japan. Yoichi Single Malt, Maine, Japan. White Oak and Single Malt Akashi, both from the White Oak Distillery, are made in Japan. And then finally, Matsui and the Hakoto, with both, which both come from Kurayoshi Distillery, are made in Japan. And if you want to find out more, you can find a link here, which basically is an infographic telling you if it's made in Japan, if it's a world whiskey, basically whiskey you source from Scotland mixed with some amount of Japanese whiskey, or it's just straight up fake scotch, where they just buy it and bottle it. And that ends the presentation. Does anyone have any final questions that they would be dying to ask? Yes. Um, honestly, oh yeah, I mean, I'm all for it, honestly. I, as a rule, I don't hate when distilleries basically buy whiskey from another distillery and then bottle it under their own label. That's called sourcing. And as long as you're honest, I don't think there's anything wrong with that, right? What I have an issue with is you buying whiskey from somewhere else bottling it and then lying about where you got it whether you don't say where you got it or you straight up lie like for example the japanese whiskey that's just scotch you don't even do anything to it it's just from scotland right that's what i have a problem with so it's an because Japan for a long time didn't have any whiskey laws because it wasn't popular, right? It really got started in 2013. That's when all of these distilleries started popping up. <clears throat> yep. What do you, what do you, what do you mean exactly? Like, uh,
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I get what you mean. I get what you mean. I mean, it depends. Some people are legitimately malicious about it. They're basically just jumping on a trend trying to sell crap, right? That's kind of the unfortunate thing. Some people are doing it by omission. Some people are mixing it, you know, with scotch in some quantity. Um, it depends from distillery to distillery, right? But... Like I said, if you want to try whiskey that's 100% from Japan, these are some good options uh, that you can find. Uh, anything else? No? Well, if nobody else has anything to ask, that's, uh, that's it, basically. That's the entire presentation. Um, I am going to... I know. Well, I mean, I, I did say it was going to be educational, right? Uh, well, I mean, if you want a drink, I, I wasn't going to say anything. That's up to you. You, you friggin, you friggin wish. <laughs> yeah, sure you did. Sure you did. All right. It's up your ass if you check far enough. I promise. 